And welcome to a special edition of Round the Rotary. Actually, it's ranching Round the Rotary because we are uh, recording this and filming this today at a good buddy of mine, uh, uh, ranch outside of Waco, Texas, Cole Thompson, who is the drilling and completions manager for Petro Legacy slash pumper because currently his new his role i guess you're in the field now more right well it's slowly transitioning back to drilling and completions but i was through most of the summer in the field okay well let us know if you need any uh, well side uh supervisors or project engineering so it might be a little bit dusty at that i don't know contact capital patrol consultants for that so (laughs) i'm going to start off with a couple questions i mean this is we've been on uh my family and I, uh, my wife and my daughter, we've been out here for a couple of days now, and the, all the girls are getting along, having fun. So we decided to kind of throw everything together. Not, we didn't just decide it. Who am I kidding? Like, I've been pushing for this for a long time to get Cole on the podcast. And Cole's one of the most interesting people that I know. And, uh, and I think, uh, but it's one of those things where it's, so we're, we're, what we're going to do, we're going to start off with a couple of questions I'm going to ask you. Right. And these are ranch-themed questions. Okay. okay? All right. Number one. Do cowboy butts drive you nuts? Yes or no? Negative. Why? Negative, okay. No. Second question is, would you rather A, save a horse, B, ride a cowboy? Save a horse. Okay. I love horses. Well, I would like to hear about uh, your uh, breaking in of horses. Uh, that's something we discussed uh, a couple days ago. Sure. And I'd love you to share that with the audience. Third question is, do all of your exes live in Texas? Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's impressive. Um, the fourth question is, what percentage of friends do you have, would you say, give or take, that live in low places? About 30%. 30% of your friends live in low places. Okay. That's yeah. good. So your good friends, balance. very very diversified portfolio of friends. Okay. So now let's get it kicked off. Thank you for answering those questions, by the way. You I bet. appreciate that. So you grew up somewhere near here. So we're, we're at his family's ranch outside of uh, Waco, Texas, and you grew up somewhere near here in a similar... Yeah, I, I grew up in Hallsburg, Texas, just okay. outside of Waco. Uh, my dad's a rancher, so I was fortunate enough to, to grow up on a ranch, and he was a backgrounder. And, What's uh, that? A backgrounder buys stalker calves, you know, from, say, like a mama cow operation. Okay. Uh, they get in a bunch of young yearlings, and then they'll they'll raise them and try to put weight on them throughout the year, and well, then much? sell them to a feedlot. So you buy them at a certain weight, and you fatten them up, and you sell them. That's right. You know, like how much weight would you, you try buy, to put on? You buy one like a three fifty or four hundred weight calf. Okay. Try to put three hundred fifty pounds to four hundred pounds on it, and that's the margin that you're going to make on that asset, right? Well, I think I can compete with that from COVID. I think I put on that weight during COVID. You know, the funny thing is, it's it's kind of similar to the oil field. What do you mean? It's a commodity, just like oil is. Okay. You know, it's traded on the board. You can hedge it. Um, and, you know, it's all about your lifting cost or synonymous with your cost of gain. Bam. So, wait. So, who? how does the, the cattle prices, I mean, what fluctuates the prices? Uh, you know, just the fundamentals fluctuate the prices of course it's complicated just like oil it's probably less geopolitical uh than oil is i would guess but um simple supply and demand fundamentals yeah um you know the the futures market obviously can have some impact and the commercial investors and the you know speculative type investors uh but yeah it's very similar to oil and gas 
And if you don't mind, try to speak up a little bit for those in the back that are trying to listen. That's hard so, to hear me. Well, yeah, and I'm also watching the uh, the, the equipment here. So you grew up, you, you're breaking horses, you're, you're, you're ranching, you're a ranch kid mm-hmm. growing up, and then you went to uh, Texas A&M. Yep. Uh, worked for my dad all throughout high school and, you know, got to break horses and uh, ride cattle with, with all the, the guys he had working with them. And, you know, graduated high school in 2004, went to Texas A&M, mm-hmm. uh, graduated. Did you always want to go to A&M? Yeah, I'm okay. a third-generation Aggie. Oh, really? Um, you know, my grandfather graduated in 54, and my parents gradu- graduated in the early 80s. And so I graduated with a petroleum engineering degree in 2008. Did you always want to go? So how did you pick petroleum engineer? Um, I actually had an uncle that worked for BP, and at that time he was saying, you know, there's a huge age gap and shortage of... Oh, the great crew change. I think yeah. we've all heard about since our career started. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, he told me about a, you know, a degree you could get where you could come out in four years yeah. and make decent money, and it sounded fun. You know, I'd Did you always want to be well an engineer? Math and science. And, um, what did, I no, mean, I, I would say not always. At one time, I wanted to be a doctor, but hell, I had doctors talk me out of that. Really? Way too much school. You're indoors all day. Uh, but, you know... What kind of doctor would you have been? Uh, possibly a plastic surgeon Ooh, yeah. okay all right okay for obvious reasons but uh um it's mainly cash and um you're helping people that's right with their lives that's right like any doctor of course right but uh no i you know the eight to ten years of school yeah didn't really appeal to me and, right um so i decided to go into engineering and petroleum engineering sounded interesting because it sounded like a uh you know a side of engineering where you can really get out there roll your sleeves up so wait, what, what, when did you graduate A and M? Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. So how big was your engineering class? Because I remember there were stories back in you know the early two thousand. I may be wrong. So if you're listening and you know, apologies. Um, about like the engineering class being like thirteen people or like fifteen, like a small class. Was your class that small? Or was it or was it kind of the old field kind of more enticing? To no, a, I would say we started off kids with your age. a little over two hundred kids, and when we graduated, we had about. 90 to 100 kids okay okay um, so are you still clo- are you still small. are you still tight with that with that very different than like mechanical engineering or nuclear engineering where right there's two or three thousand kids but so are you still tight with that group yeah a few of them okay uh hunter wallace who's recent podcast guest yep um and a few others i kept in touch with were you friends with hunter wallace back in the day in college no uh I felt like he might be a bad influence. and I was So really he might be that 30% in no, low place. Uh, we were friends, but uh, we've become better friends later in life. Throughout so we've kind of reconnected. Right. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. All right. So after A&M, you get your first job in the old field doing what, where. And let's run this elevator talk us that through that to where your uh, current There's, position is. Yeah, today. okay. Quick elevator speech. Uh, so graduate A&M in 08 and took – well, let me back up. While I was studying petroleum engineering – I had an in- internship with Gray Wolf Drilling, and basically they just send you out in the field for a summer and you roughneck on the drilling. Okay. Um, so that was quite the quite the shock uh, experience. But was that the first time you've been in an oil rig? That was the first time. On really? That, yeah. All right. So what? Uh, where? What, where'd you go? Like uh, Louisiana. Okay. Yeah, kind of South Louisiana, and uh, that you know got to experience that culture down there. And then I went to South Texas. 
completely different from South Louisiana. Yeah. Um, right there on the border. Um, and so had the internship, graduated, and then I hired on full-time with Grey Wolf mm-hmm. and continued sort of a um, superintendent, you know. Training thing? like yeah. a, So an ops management development yeah. program, like a fast-track program. Right, fast-track yeah. program for engineers to become rig superintendents. Yeah, that's what a... I was an engineer, but that's what that's kind of similar to my current my previous role at uh, Noble Drilling. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I did that for about nine months, and then found out about a turnkey drilling group. Yeah. That actually had drilling engineers in house in the office that would take on uh, drilling projects for other companies that say didn't have the engineering staff or wanted to mitigate risk with a turnkey bid. So it's very similar, kind of uh, my current company, Capital Trunk Consultants. Yeah, I don't know if you guys turnkey, but it, rather than being a day rate, it's like right. one, one lump sum for the project. We'll get you from start I'm to finish. About, I'm not talking about and that. Take on all that risk. I'm talking about more the project, man. Okay, so you got hired on there, right? All right. Uh, so well, yeah, I, I moved out of the superintendent role into the drilling engineering role with Turnkey Group. Okay. Um, got exposed to. And that's actually where we met everybody. We met. Um, I think it was my first or second day in sales when you were at this group. Is, am I thinking no, the same? No, that was the group after. Okay. So I left Great Wolf, went to Trade and Engineering. Yeah. And they're more of a contract engineering group, sort right. of like CPC. That's, that's what Very I thought you were talking CPC. about. Yeah. And uh, got to wear several different hats there and work on the production side a little bit. Uh, but did mostly drilling there. And of course, that's where we met. That's actually a funny story. Yeah, that's great. And I'll like tell, to tell that story. Yeah, I'd like to tell that story. So. Okay. And chime in, please, mm-hmm. uh, in case I'm forgetting something. So it was when I first got into sales, um, and I think it was my first or second day or something like that. And I was doing, a, you know, I was giving a list of companies. Find, you know, here's a list of companies and find some more. You know, so I went to Trayton Engineering right. where you were, and I went up there. And I'm talking to, the, you know, the small group that was up there. They're like, all right, well, hey, we want you to be our engineer. Okay, absolutely, sure. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I've never been in sales before, but yeah, sure, why not, right? I, I like talking to people, I like meeting new people, so. You were very confident, I will give you that. Co- really? Yeah. Well. Not cocky, but confident. So, I, I, I go in, I knock on the door, and Cole turns around like this. Whoever's watching kind of turns around like this. Yes. I was like, hey, uh, Cole, uh, nice to meet you. JP Warner, I was working at Archer at the time. Archer, oh, I, I, this is like first or second, no training or anything like that whatsoever mm-hmm. when I transitioned into sales that I had. Um, and you're very dry, very much the, the standard. Quintessential in- engineer. Very much the standard engineer where, apologies for the, uh, the, uh, the background noise. For those of you that are tuning in, we are actually sitting in a garage in, a, in Cole's uh, ranch, so there's noises that we can't control, so thanks for bearing with us. People so, working outside. Oh man, people working. Is the sun down? Doing some ranchy things. So uh, so you turn around, and dude, you're so dry. You're like, ugh, we need this, hold up. So, trying to talk to you, trying to get something out of you, very cold, very engineer, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you turn, you're like, actually, if you have a, uh, you know, flux capacitor, XKG model, uh, for, for whatever. He, he, he named something like these, like, technical specs that I had no idea. 10K BOP. 10K BOP, you know, 2 Rams and a 14-foot footprint. I'm like, what the, what is this guy talking about? 
So, um, so that was the first time we met. And uh, a couple months later, I'm doing a breakfast run over at um, Fidelity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of walk by his Cole's office, and I'm like, all right, well, here we go. And Fidelity's office was downtown. I kind of sit down, and, and it's, again, the same awkward situation, very dry, very quiet. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm not getting through this guy. So I just kind of like sit back, and I'm like, hey, man. Really smells like piss outside your office. Remember that? Yeah. That's when you can turn around. And you're like, what? I know, man. So that, that's kind of where we hit it off. Like, um, that just goes to show, have vulnerability, right? That's right. Bring stuff up. Be yourself. We had a real conversation. Yeah, we had a real conversation. It wasn't a uh, a schmooze, faux confident uh, conversation. So anyway, went to Fidelity, mm-hmm. which uh, you enjoyed. Yeah. That's- one of the best roles I've ever had. And you were actually working at the ranch, uh, working remotely from the ranch when the Fidelity office was closed Not down. The, uh, when, the, when the downtown Houston yes. office was closing down. Correct. We had the South Texas project. They sold that asset to Hillcorp. Okay. Um, but when I came on board at Fidelity, you know, they let me just take over this drilling program in South Texas. All right. And it wasn't a program where you go out and, you know, you contract a rig. They own their own drilling rig. Okay. So it was almost a dual role of helping run a drilling contracting company, but also working for an E&P. Interesting. Yeah. That kind of gives you good insight mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, it was it was an older um, Vicksburg gas play right on the border, Penitas La Jolla area. Penitas La Jolla area. Great, great accent. Thank you. Uh, just outside of McAllen. Okay. And... Way Drilling in an urban environment mm-hmm. on the border with drug trafficking right oh. next door. Um, it was some days like an episode of Border Wars. Really? Yeah. But the rig was very unique. It was a casing drilling rig. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was designed, of course, to drill wells with casing as tubulars. And the, the technology. How common is that? It's not very common. Uh, but okay. the reason the reason that we used it there, um, sort of the the theory behind it was it being a an older field, the gas zones above our target zone were very depleted mm-hmm. and lots of loss circulation. And when you're drilling with casing, it would help mitigate your losses to the well bore. Even though the annulus space was a little tighter, okay. it's hard to kind of nerd out and get technical here. But it also smeared the cuttings on the side of the well bore and helped seal those loss zones. Okay. And then it gave you options if you were going to. How similar was? I'm go on. I well, interrupt too much. My wife tells me this all the time. Go on. Uh, you know, let's let's say you're drilling the production zone. You're drilling with casing. You yeah. have a bit on the end of that casing. Yeah. If you get in trouble, you can drop a ball, release that bit, wireline set oh. your float equipment, and cement your drill string in the well, and you have a well. Rather than if you had drill pipe and you get in trouble and you get stuck or you're having a, a well control event, yeah. it's hard to trip out of the hole with the drill pipe and then get production casing in the well. So that's kind of interesting, kind of being thrust in a role where you're doing something that sounds pretty innovative and on the forefront of something that's not common. It was very innovative, very uncommon, and I can tell you I did not know what I was doing. Actually, this is uh, kind of a good segue question. So you were in a role. You're doing something completely something that you were not familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. How did you get that knowledge? Did you trust your gut? Was there other people around you? Did you, I mean, did you talk to your uh, personnel in the field? Like what? How did you get the knowledge to drill with casing? God, that's a great question, JP. That's, that's a great question. Thank you. Go on. I would say that I was determined 
to learn. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. I was willing to admit that. Okay. But uh, I was confident in my ability to adapt and learn. But my question is, how did you learn? I mean, so how? So that's part of it. Was I believed I could learn? Okay. And then I just got out in the field and got with the consultants that had been drilling those wells for years. Um, got with the contractor that was helping us run our company right. and rig, and uh, just learned everything I could about casing drilling. So you pretty much kind of circled everyone, kind of got input from everywhere. Listen, right. I got out in the field. Right. And I talked to the guys that were on the rig boots on the ground and learn from them of course there there was some technical things to learn in the office and our corporate office was in denver by the way okay so i i didn't even have a boss in the houston office i was reporting to a guy in denver and sometimes in glendive montana one of our other field offices okay um so but we also got good support from pat o'brien yeah uh I don't know if it's worth telling a little background on Fidelity, but these guys... Yeah, why not? Pat O'Brien formed the drilling and completions team from XBP guys that were involved with the Macondo or just trying to leave the fiasco. After 2010? Was that 2010? Yes, somewhere in there, 2010. You know, the the Deepwater Horizon event. And uh, Pat was actually on the platform. Uh, that, that burned down and literally like pushed his way into uh, no shit. A, a safety boat or whatever you call the boats to escape the yeah. platform. And, you know, he came over and, and brought a really good team, people that had been there since the Amico days. Oh. And, and Pat was uh, a great leader and engineer himself, had a PhD in drilling. How do you... I don't think I've ever met anyone with a PhD in drilling. I've never met anybody with a PhD in drilling. Okay, interesting. Uh, But, you know, had a lot of great leadership qualities and the knowledge to back it up. Dude, tell that story about you uh, you picking them up. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's that's a funny story. So, the first time I ever picked him up from his house to go to the airport and fly to Denver, I show up at his house in Katy and park on the street and walk up to the front door, knock, 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 and... This lady comes to the front door, was just typical, you know, big Texas hair. Texas hair, yeah. You know, she had some fire about her, and I was already reading the expression on her face as she walks up, and I'm just like, uh, I don't know. know, um, A little bit of anger and hostility. So you like not too loud? Intuitively, I I was picking up on this, and uh, I knew something, I knew a tongue lashing was about to happen. Why? And she just lit me up in the front yard about, who are you? What do you want? You know, and just made me feel that tall. For knocking on the door? For knocking on the door. Uh, and I felt like I had trespassed and was a criminal. And then all of a sudden, Pat O'Brien comes out of the back, and he's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's cold. You know, he works for us, and it's okay. Oh, or, so she thought it was a... Yeah. A reporter. A reporter, like investigative reporter or the news. Oh, and, so she was like, just like fed yeah. up with it. You know, you can Google Pat and he comes up on C-SPAN. You okay. Know, he, he was in the middle of all the legal yeah. litigation and everything going on. So, um, luckily he came to my rescue and calm, <laughs> calm. I think his wife's name was Pam. Calm was Pam down. Yeah. <laughs> or Nance or something like that. Nance. Nance. Calm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, it was really funny. And, uh, anyway, we, we went to the airport and he even, did told she me. laugh it off? 
Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. okay. But she was unapologetic about it. I'll say oh, because she's probably just fed yeah. up with everyone trying to knock on her door and, like... Yeah, they had been harassed. Grill her know. husband and her. That's right, and um, it, it, was a tr- it was a tragedy, so they were, they were on guard. Okay. But despite what happened there, the, the talent and expertise that he brought over really helped you know, shape me as an engineer, and I learned so much from them. And was when, he so he was a good mentor? When something like that happen, they can teach you so much about what you know how to prevent those type of things. Okay, those uh, high co- consequence events um, that could bring down a company potentially. You know, luckily it was BP, and they're huge, but not not luckily because yeah. it's a tragic event in the south texas area that we were drilling it, it was a pretty hairy area to drill not only in the urban environment like we drilled under schools under neighborhoods oh high risk playground you know directional with casing and yeah the the upper zones were depleted but once you got to your deeper target zone you're in a really high poor pressure environment that could potentially cause a well control event do you view pat as kind of i guess your mentor i guess to he was a great mentor. You know, I haven't talked to him in years, um, but <clears throat> he just had a way of communicating and inspiring confidence. Okay. Uh, and like I said, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure he knew it. Yeah. But he believed I could do it. So he gave you kind of the, the, the confidence right. to kind of, I guess, carry through with a with the project. So, so from uh, Fidelity, um, so how'd you get to where you're at uh, today, Cole? Well, I had a good friend introduce me to Jason Churchill. Interesting. Go at, on. At Venato Oil and Gas. Yes, I remember that. And at that time, at Fidelity, the wills were starting to come off their E&P side. Okay. They were owned by MBU Resources, All right. a big utility company out of Montana, Dakota area, and corporate office in Bismarck, North Dakota. And they're used to very um, you know, steady Wait, is this market. Venato or is this Fidelity? The, well, this is at Fidelity. So yeah, okay. MBU Resources okay. owns Fidelity. It's their E&P subsidiary. Okay. And oil, oil and gas prices started coming down. You know, the, the Saudis were flooding the market, mm-hmm. and this was like 2014-ish. Yeah. And uh, towards the end of 2014, I just saw the writing on the walls and was like, all right, I need to get out of here. I was already taking over roles from other engineers that had left. I was over the South Texas drilling, but I was fracking wells in East Texas. I was drilling wells in the Arches National Park so in you just Utah. Spread thin. Yeah, in the National Park, and which of course is an environmental nightmare yeah. to operate yeah. in. Um, but it was a great experience. Drilled some amazing wells out there. Uh, used you know the best of the best technology, MPD, you know the directional. I feel like that would be time consuming. I guess uh, the paperwork um, or the permits and the, all the that stuff. The permits and BLM process was very time consuming. Okay. It was an act of Congress to, yeah. to get a permit. But Literally. you had to get way ahead of you know your plans and, and have all that teed up and ready to go. But eventually, MBU Resources, they had enough of the volatility of oil and gas. And they started selling off. I think I have too. <laughs> yeah, hard to blame them. Uh, and so, reached out to... J.P. Warren. Oh, the host of Around the Rotary podcast. And, you know, just looking around. Uh, I hadn't been laid off yet, but... Um, you just could feel something was coming. Well, I was also traveling a lot. Every other week, I'd fly from Waco or Dallas to Denver, which was their corporate I office. That. yeah. 
so the travel was was really a grind. You had two and kids. I wanted to get two, back to Texas. You had two kids at the time, correct? Two kids at the time, two right. daughters. Yeah. Yeah. So you made the introduction to Jason, and they were Venado at that time, a little small private yep. equity portfolio yep. company, and they had a position in the East Eagleford, Lee County. Yep. I think they amassed like a hundred thousand acres. I'm sure Jason's talked about it. Well, no, I mean, I, when, my previous uh, company, uh, Penergy, we were uh, setting conductor for them in uh, Lee County. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, I know that Giddings Meat Market. Just want to throw that out there. Delicious. It was great. Very, place. very tasty. Uh, you made the introduction, and they were looking for another engineer, and um, they were they were also working on a South Texas drilling yep. project, sort of an explorative play. And Jason hired me to come down and help him drilling and completions there. Okay. And then uh, Venado actually was April 22nd, because I know that was my birthday. You guys can put that in your calendars. I think that's when um, it spun or something happened. I don't know. I'm not very clear what happened. Or we don't have to yeah, discuss it. But anyway, Petro yeah. Legacy was formed. Right. Not to, get, not to get into the details, but we had a big transformation from Venado to Petro Legacy that you know today. Right. And their Venado still exists today. That's correct. A different uh, investor. Managing group, yeah. KKR versus NCAT backed. Right, okay. You know, they started up another group, KKR, and we rebranded as Petro Legacy. And we did divest the old Eagleford asset and then started a new fund. Had it. With NCAP and made an acquisition out in the Permian. Right. In Martin County. Okay. And that's what we've been doing for the past four years. Okay. And so, how long, so you've been there for what, four or five years now? Yeah, I started in January of 2015, so a little over five years. What, what, there, okay, the oil field, there's a lot of uh, stigma, there's a lot of reputational offense. What's a, I guess, an internal uh, myth in the oil field that, that you, uh, you'd like to debunk or that you can't debunk right now? What, what would be a, uh, I guess, a myth or a stereotype that you'd like to debunk? Hmm. You know, one of the things that comes to mind initially is that I feel like it's hyperbole to say that Phil Guy's ideas don't matter, they're not as important, but right. um, discounting their input in certain decisions and not bringing them to the table as an equal. To make decisions or right. to provide input before decisions made. Correct. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to say that that's our mentality at Petro Legacy, but you know, as I transitioned to this role as a pumper, and I wouldn't even call myself a pumper because I'm not a good pumper. I'm just a pumper's assistant right. trying to learn from these guys. Yeah. Um, but bringing them to the table as equals and sharing our neurons, you know, is, is, is one brain. And uh, there's a lot to learn from those guys. And they may not have the, the technical gab, you know, that you might see in the boardroom. Right. But they certainly have the know-how and the skill. But that's and also have, not their role because the people in the boardroom certainly won't be in the right. field. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you know, and the stereotype is some of these guys are not great communicators. Right. But uh, they know how to get the job done. Right. And I've, I've gained tremendous respect going out and working with these guys and realizing I have so much more to learn about yeah. oil and gas um, and how to be a better engineer because it gave me a different perspective. Right. And for so long you've got your blinders on and you're in your office mm -hmm. and you know you're doing your calculations or putting your your progs and plan together but you're not looking at it through the lens of that field operator and yeah 
the people yeah. actually executing the work. Right, like the production team and what those lease operators are going to inherit from you when you drill a pad, frack it, build your facility and hand that off. Yeah. So going out in the field and working with these guys has just opened my eyes uh, tremendously and made me realize how to be a better team player and more of a... Get their input. So right, right. Like one... So one, similar one plus to you, one is three. So yeah. similar to you learning how to drill with casing by getting the, uh, the the you know the field personnel and bringing everyone pretty much to the table, you're kind of getting back to your roots, your country roots. You're kind of getting back to your roots of uh, of, and then I might be putting words in your mouth, but getting ba- everyone back on that can make a decision right. that knows what's going on. That's right. I've always leaned on the field guys and you know come to come to them hat in hand and leave my ego at the door hey I'll let them know right away what I don't know and that puts them at ease yeah Um, some people are are scared to look stupid or uh, some people don't want to not know yeah look inexperienced or whatever yeah what I wanted them to know is what this is what I don't know and I asked all the dumb questions Mm -hmm. and without fear of looking stupid or being humiliated and that put them at ease and then once I started treating them as equals, we really approached every problem together. And like I said, share our neurons. And um, I learned a lot faster that way because they were much more uh, willing to share their insight and help me learn. Do you feel that moving forward, I guess that's kind of be your, uh, your, your mode to work, um, bringing everyone kind of to the table to make it for a decision. Do you feel that, that that's something that you definitely implement the rest of your career? I think so. All right. I, yeah. I think that. So do you feel that... So I guess that being said, you feel that other companies um, should probably bring more people uh, to the table, clo- you know, closest to the well, to the table before decisions are kind of kind of made? I think so. You know, I've seen a culture shift at Petro Legacy where, yeah, we're all working remotely now and we're not in the office as much, but... We stay connected and we communicate and we bring everybody from the production supervisor, the workover superintendent, right. or the production foreman. We get them all on the same call or, or Zoom conference meeting and uh, approach every decision together okay. and make that decision together. Do you get more um, credit and respect with your mustache um, in the office and in the field? I feel like I do, yeah. So you, you, I remember the text you sent me. You're like, I'm gonna start growing a mustache because of you, JP. Is that still true? Or are you just gonna, you're gonna keep it. I don't recall that. You, you think? You, okay. All right. I'm pretty sure I was the first mustache, ever, I'm, ever. Yeah. Well, your mustache is looking in the oil field. Your, your mustache is looking very nice, buddy. So um, that's your, a way of life. Yours is too, JP. Thanks, Cole. So your hair is even better. <laughs> hey, man. COVID. I don't. I haven't been able to get a cut. So it's just grown this long. What products are you using? Right nah, we don't have to get into that. We don't have time. No one cares about that. Um, but it's probably, it's honestly just a lot of dirt, sweat, cowhide, a little bit of oil, a little bit of oil, tack room, saddles, dust. I like this rustic look. I know, man. So is my wife. That's what it's about, though. Like, so for example, let me give a little background on myself. I was born in Houston, but I grew up in Connecticut, okay? Like... We didn't ride horses. We didn't do that unless you were like an equestrian. We never did stuff like that, right? So like, come here, throw a cowboy hat on, and uh, literally, my wife is really into it right now. 
So I can tell. You're a natural though. Oh man, thanks, buddy boy. So you have a whole new what? swagger. Oh man, it ain't <laughs> swag; it's a way of life. It's a it's a thought process, buddy. So what? Uh, what? <coughs> let's let's wrap this up, man. Let's get inside. We got some steaks on the on the grill cooking right now. So uh, unless you want to keep going, I mean, I'm fine. What do you want to do? Whatever you want to talk about, man. All right. Um. What uh, what top three shows would you recommend to people out there who might still be stuck at home, quarantine, and all that stuff? Fiction or nonfiction or both. It, Shows? Okay. Well, the, la- the most recent one I watched that was amazing was The Last Narc. Okay. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Better than Narcos? I don't, that's tough. The first season of Narcos was amazing. So good. But it was almost like fictional. Okay. Uh, the Last Narc is interviewing real people. Oh. It's not a reenactment, right? So it, it's more of a documentary. Really? Documentary. Pretty sick. Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. So, you know, just you know, real quick summary on, on that show. Um, it's about the Mexican drug cartel in the 80s and the murder of a DEA agent. I can't remember. I think it was Carlos Camarena. His last name was Camarena. All right. And uh, he was murdered in 1985. And there's another DEA agent that is trying to investigate this murder. And they, he starts to uncover the involvement of not only the Mexican drug cartel, but the whole Mexican government up to the president. Um, really? And the CIA. What do you mean, and the CIA? And the CIA. Actually, well, are you going to ruin it if you say it? Well, I'm not going to give out any spoiler okay. alerts here, but uh, not everything is as it appears. And Interesting. Okay. This is coming straight from the mouth of Mexican-American DEA agents that were recruited in the 80s to infiltrate these cartels. Yeah. Because in the past, it was always the good old traditional boys from the U.S., and they realized they didn't understand the culture. Right, they couldn't get in. Right, yeah. So they hire these guys, um, Chicanos as they call themselves, Mexican-Americans that are born here. Right. And... uh, they start using them as undercover agents to infiltrate these cartels. Jeez. Um, very dangerous, probably yeah. a more dangerous job out there. Oh. So it, that's a great show. Tagging cattle's up there, too, with our experience. That's right. Yesterday, with, num- with number 59. We had a pretty, okay, long story short, we had a pretty aggressive... Are we segueing into that? No, story? we're not segueing. Oh, okay. I'm just kind of sidebarring okay, real quick. Side. So pretty much yesterday we, uh, and it's my second day ever uh, tagging cattle, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I'm driving, and Cole is roping. We were roping him today, yeah. right? So he's trying to rope him, and this city slicker doesn't know how to rope. So I just said, just grab that tail. So he grabs the tail, and this mom, number 59, this mom was not peaceful. Yeah. She was very hostile. Very hostile. I'm talking about she's running up and like smashing the gator, chasing us around, you know, chasing us around the four wheeler, you know, putting her head in the four. It was pretty. Uh, it, it was. It was, was getting western out there. It was very western, right? Fortunately, I did not trip at all in the when I the cow first charged. I did not trip at all and fall uh, into some cow shit. Actually, which, you did. You did trip and fall. I'll, I'll just add that out later. Okay. So. And this that was pretty that was pretty good. But good thing our families were watching us from about you know half a mile away, wondering what the hell are these guys doing. They had quite the show. Yeah. So anyway, so last Narcos, 
We're talking about the danger about being a DEA agent and going undercover. So, last Narcos, and I... The last narc, yeah. The last narc, okay. And um, what else? Oh, man. Um, and, and really, this is just the most recent shows I've watched. Operation Toussaint. Uh, it's about human trafficking. Hot topic uh, right now. Hot topic right now. Um, I believe that organization is called Out Rescue. And a gentleman from the FBI, I can't recall his name right now, he left uh, his job working for the Homeland Security and gets into... Um, he, he, well, he builds this company where they go out and they fight human trafficking and more uh, focused on child abduction okay. and child sex right. trafficking. And uh, he goes into Haiti and rescues these children, and he actually goes undercover himself also. Really? Yeah. Uh, very interesting person. Um, you know, and very admirable to see him give up the security yeah, the safety to, of the U.S. government to get down and dirty and, and go actually, private. Yeah, and actually but, make some change. But that allows you know, with the FBI or any organization like that, your jurisdiction is within the United States. But going private, he's able to work with foreign governments. Okay, uh, so there's an advantage to that, right? You know, to fight this type of crime. Um, three. Number three. I'm trying to think of what else I've seen. Uh, Outcry uh, is a show that's it's, it's kind of a similar topic but uh, a young man in Leander is accused of a crime uh, and uh, I don't want to give a whole lot of details you know don't want to spoil uh, the show but um, it's interesting to see you know, the DA and the prosecution really latch on to a goal and try to prosecute somebody. So once they had, once they had their story, in, yeah. once they had their decision, yeah, that's pretty much okay. I made up my mind, but conviction. now I made up my mind. But let's now let's get, you know, from A to Z there. Like let's let's start making whatever we decide up. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he's accused of an awful crime, and he goes through the legal process of appeal. Yeah. And this is in Leander, Texas, just north of Austin. It's so very close okay. to home. Just a few years ago, very recent. Um, and it's just an interesting look into how that whole system works. So, that, so that's a great show, Outcry, on, uh, I think it's on Showtime. All right. Yeah. Give me a quote that you want to give to our audience right now. What is a quote from mm. Cole Thompson? I have one on my phone. No, uh-uh. You can't have technology to disrupt the, uh, the frequencies. Well, i got to remember what it is. Uh, let's see. The only thing that you can control in life is how you respond to life. I actually like that. It's a great and part. actually, I think that's probably more relevant now than anything. How are you dealing with, it, with, this, co- uh, with this COVID, quarantine... Places shut down. How are you personally dealing with it? Are you done with it? Or it's like, let's just, let's, I mean, let's get back to the kids in school. Actually, let's not get into too much detail on that. But I mean, where you, I'm sure the rest, everyone else is kind of not over it in a, in a negative way. Like let's not wear masks, but Mm -hmm. they want life to return to normal. Right? Yeah. I think I'm ready for life to return to normal and just open everything up. Um, I certainly believe in taking the proper precautions and help you know, stop the spread of COVID. Right. But I think we have to be practical and rational. Is the, re- about is the reaction 
warrant to the risk. Right. Right. You know, do, do people really understand the consequences of keeping everything shut in or shut down? At um, home, too. At home, you know, uh, the economy. Um, I don't think they understand the repercussions that are coming further down the line from, from these actions. I agree. I think there's a lot of um, things that will happen that we're not, uh, we're not thinking of. Right. We're right not cognizant of it. We're not cognizant of it. But anyway, Cole, man, I appreciate it. We got some, uh, we got some old steaks inside. Hopefully, it's number fifty-nine heifer. And, uh, but anyway, Cole, I wanted to thank you for, uh, for first off, having us and hosting our family and, uh, and uh, taking time to do this podcast. I know it's something that I've been trying to get on the books, and I'm just glad we did it here. God's country, ranch life. Absolutely, thank you, brother. All right, buddy. Well, we'll talk to you soon, and uh, actually, I'll talk to you right now after we close out because we're about to go eat dinner but thanks everyone for tuning in if you have any uh, questions for cole thompson or myself you can reach us at round the rotary at cap-petro.com again that's round the rotary at cap-petro.com all right everyone thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you all soon bye